Our speaker this evening is journalist and historian Louisa Thomas. A graduate of Harvard University, Thomas is a contributor to the New Yorker's website and the author of Conscience, Two Soldiers, Two Pacifists, One Family, A Test of Will and Faith in World War I. She is a former writer for Grantland and is a former fellow at the New American Foundation. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, Vogue, the Wall Street Journal, the New Yorker, the Paris Review, and many other places. I'm sure we've all read some of her work before this evening. The New York Times selected her most recent book, the one she'll be speaking about this evening, as uh, for its editor's choice. The book was also featured, and you probably got this in your mail, on the Sunday uh, book review. Reviewer Joseph Ellis said, for a long time I've been waiting for a biographer with sufficient style and emotional range to tell the quite extraordinary story of Louisa Catherine Adams in all its splendor and sadness. Louisa has been worth the wait. Tonight, Thomas will share excerpts from her biography of Louisa Adams, the wife of John Quincy Adams, Please join me in welcoming Louisa Thomas at the Boston Athenaeum. Thank you. Thank you for that introduction. It's um, wonderful to be here and appropriate, I think, given John Quincy Adams' involvement in Athenaeum in its earliest days. This is, in fact, where he left his thousands of books, his library, when he and Louisa Catherine Adams sailed to St. Petersburg um, in 1809. He came back to find that many of his books had actually been lost, I believe, um, but I can't imagine that his wife shed a tear. I think she probably would have thought Athenaeum did her a favor. His books were sometimes the source of some tension between them. When he was faced with the choice of his wife or his books, he did not always choose his wife. And that makes this a place where Louisa does and does not belong. This idea that she was caught between places, between people and roles, is one of the things that most fascinated me about her. Her relationship to the United States, and particularly to Massachusetts, was unusually complicated and rich. She was born in London, and by the time she reached the United States, she'd already lived in France and Prussia. She'd crossed oceans and over mountains. She'd already seen many things that most people of her time could never imagine. And yet, Massachusetts was to her the strangest place of all. Quincy, what shall I say of my impressions of Quincy, she would later write of her arrival in 1801. Had I stepped into Noah's Ark, I could not have been more utterly astonished. Her introduction was not exactly auspicious. Abigail Adams, who once called her a siren, found her frail and vaguely foreign a, quote, fine lady which is not something a good New England housewife was supposed to be. For her part, Louisa was at first intimidated by her resolutely and industriously cheerful mother-in-law, bewildered by the local customs and overwhelmed by her new duties. 
She'd later say, where was I supposed to have learned to milk a cow? At the card table in the Prussian court? As it happened, being a fine lady with a canny political intelligence would help her and her husband immensely in the diplomatic world and in Washington, if not the barnyard. The truth, though, was she was frail and she was insecure, but she was also far more resilient and resourceful than first appeared. Let me tell you another story about her. In 1814, at a small post station 12 miles from St. Petersburg, Louisa said goodbye to her husband, not knowing when she would see him again. There were tears on her cheek. She was crying not only of grief, but of distress. John Quincy was leaving Russia to negotiate the treaty that would end the War of 1812, and leaving Louisa alone with her seven-year-old son, Charles, in a ruinously expensive city where she did not speak the language and had few friends. She'd just lost a much-loved daughter. She'd not seen her other two young sons for five years. It would have been daunting for anyone, but for Louisa, the prospect was absolutely dreadful. Even in the best of times, Louisa doubted herself. She described herself as timid. She called one of her unpublished memoirs, The Adventures of a Nobody. The other one, another one she called, Record of a Life. At the end of the year, John Quincy wrote Louisa and told her to sell or pack their things and meet him in Paris. The trip was nearly 2,000 miles over the half-thawed land devastated by the Napoleonic Wars. She and her tiny son, armed with his toy sword, were on the road for 40 days. And in that time, they were robbed, warned not to continue, told one of her two male servants, whom she had hired to protect her, was a, quote, desperate villain. She traveled through half-burnt, half-empty villages over battlefields still strewn with wreckage. She listened to women tell her stories of rampage and rape. Halfway through, she learned that Napoleon himself had escaped Elba and was heading, as she was, toward Paris. Men were mustering, readying for war. Her servants fled in fear. She pretended to be Napoleon's sister, at one point, her carriage was surrounded by soldiers. Tear them out of the carriage. Kill them, they cried in French, a language she could understand. Vive Napoleon, she yelled and waved her handkerchief. Vive, they replied. She went on. What is so remarkable about that journey to me is not only how daring it was. It's also what she made of it later in her life. Twenty years later, she wrote an account of that trip. She understood it was not only a good story, it was something that she could use to make meaning. It was something she could use to illuminate something of herself, for herself and for others, something about her fortitude, her resiliency, her curiosity. She wanted to show, she wrote, that she was, quote, one who was. She underscored that was. That suggests that in her darker moments, she may have thought she would be forgotten. And for a long time, she was. When she was mentioned in accounts of her more famous relatives, it was often as a footnote, half dismissed, as sickly and sad. Some knew better. John Adams called her journals, which she sent to him, a quote, necessary of life to me. Her grandson, Henry, was fascinated by her. He read her papers, thought he might publish them, copied hundreds of pages. 
and it's possible to see their influence in his own work. The first editor of the Adams Papers, Lyman C. Butterfield, once wrote, in the entire span of the Adams dynasty, no figure is more central than the wife of the second Adams statesman, John Quincy Adams, and yet none is less known or more elusive. She was unknown because for two centuries, she was thought to exist outside those bounds of histories, those chronicles of deeds and men. She was elusive too because she was contradictory, left false trails about her family's background, denied her own importance, and was quick to describe her doubts. Her character was quicksilver, and the roles she held were unofficial. She was an American who was foreign-born, a first lady in a country that was not quite her own, and a mother who outlived all but one of her children. She was torn between cultural ideals and strong instincts that she could not ignore. The idea that a woman should wonder about her independent identity, apart from her husband's, apart from her son's, apart from her famous families, was hardly prevalent or desirable during the era in which she lived, could be painful. But there was also a kind of freedom in it. Because the other, the other members of the Adams family took their identity for granted. Because she did not have to speak for the ages, she could speak for herself. It became her habit, even her strategy, to define herself as not like the Adamses. And yet, in some larger sense, the Adams family helped instill in Louisa what it helped instill in the young republic, a concern for the value of the individual, a fascination with human nature and its various forms, an awareness of selfish instincts, a suspicion of power, a respect for traditions, and a willingness to scrutinize people, especially oneself. And it was in the letters she exchanged with the Adams family where she really found her voice. It was her voice that first struck me. I came across her letters while doing some research for a different project on Andrew Jackson, and they startled me. Who was this other Louisa, I thought. They were vivid, propulsive, urgent, often hilarious, and their authors seemed deeply human. There was nothing settled, nothing cast in marble or painted by oil or enshrined in posterity about the people she saw and the events she witnessed. She witnessed so much. When John Quincy Adams died, some said that in his life one could see the history of the first half century of this country. Something like that could be said of her. She was born only months before the start of the revolution. The year she first arrived in the United States, federal power passed peacefully from her father-in-law, no less, to the opposition for the first time. On the day that her daughter died in St. Petersburg, Moscow was sent on fire. When she died, the United States were only a few years away from civil war. Part of the pleasure of writing this book, really, was viewing those events so well-worn through her amazing, fresh, gimlet eyes. She was born in 1775 in London. Her father was a patriotic American merchant. Her mother was vivacious, charming, socially ambitious, and English. Her parents had secrets, some of which Louisa may have sensed. She spent the American Revolution as a young child living in a luxurious mansion in France 
and when the war was over, she returned with her family to London, where she was taught to be a lovely ornament in the language of the day. Her family lived in a gracious house in Tower Hill, and for, for the most part, Louisa was raised there as young, pretty, wealthy English girls were raised, only she was told to consider herself American, and more importantly, to marry one. Her relationship to John Quincy is central to this book. It was sometimes passionate, sometimes tender, sometimes fraught, beginning with their courtship. In 1798, when they wed, he made it clear that he was committed to his country, and in marrying her, he was committing her to. She tried at once to conform and to resist it. After their wedding, she and John Quincy moved to Berlin, where he was tasked with negotiating a treaty, and she with negotiating a royal court as a Republican who had never been in a republic, representing a nation she had never seen. When she reached the United States with its democratic pretensions, she would find that nav navigation even harder than learning the protocol for dancing with a king. It was the harder because it was not easy to settle. She lived in London, France, Berlin, Russia, Washington, Boston, Quincy, and traveled extensively. There were apartments, hotels, houses, dachas, cottages, the White House, ships, carriages, sleds, coaches, trains, steamboats. It might not be too much to say that for long stretches, she lived in trunks and traveling cases. She often felt unsure of where she could call home. This makes it easy and a little tempting to dwell on what makes her elusive. But Mr. Butterfield was right to call her central, too. She was a force, witty, charming, and critical to her husband's diplomatic and political efforts. Abroad, she won favor with kings and queens. At home, she sparred and bantered with the leading politicians of the day. She presided over weekly dinners for senators and cabinet members and dignitaries. She set up a kind of campaign headquarters in her parlor one summer in Philadelphia. She had a weekly series of parties, Tuesdays and Mrs. Adams in Washington that made her the dominant social figure. It was a great part of John Quincy Adams's efforts for the presidency, and she called it my campaign. It was her campaign in some ways more than his. At a time of rising popular sentiment and turmoil within the political establishment, she understood something important. She understood that people are governed by emotions as well as laws, and that politics are about people, their little passions and prejudices, their feelings of wants and hope. John Quincy did everything he could to hide his feelings. He even refused to, to campaign for the presidency because he did not want to appear to beg for votes. He lashed himself in his diary for his failings, but outwardly, as his son Charles wrote, he wore an iron mask. She understood something else, too, a lesson painfully learned. Ambition could have terrible costs. At just the moment John Quincy came into power of the presidency, she felt most powerless. She was isolated, felt alone, and they fought. Their children struggled. Their family began to fall apart. When she and her husband returned to John Quincy, she, returned to Quincy, she believed they had come to live out their days exhausted and grieving and at times self-questioning and self-flagellating. She had sacrificed so much, but she was resilient. And in fact, the Adams's last and greatest act had just begun. While her husband became one of the first great anti-slavery leaders in Congress, 
Louisa wrestled with what it meant to be a woman, a wife, a self. She thought about what to have faith, how to have faith, to find what to live for and why. As fantastic as her adventures were, the real story I wanted to tell was of her inner life as well as I could. Her biography cannot be told like her husband's. It is a history of feelings as well as facts, of questions as well as answers, of doubt as well as certainty. It is a record of a life, a narrative of a journey, the adventures of an extraordinary woman. And I would be happy to take any questions you would have. Anyone? No one? Yes. Well, I was, I had spent a kind of, I'd read by this point a lot of letters from the early 19th century, um, and very few of them, and some of them were very frank, very few of them were very funny, actually, um, and hers were. She had a kind of sardonic irreverence that I found unusual and appealing, um, and a kind of self-awareness. She didn't take anything too seriously, including herself. And that was pretty refreshing. Um, a lot of people from that time saw what they were doing as, as it was, as historic. Um, they knew that they were writing for their future biographers. And I had a sense as I was reading her, um, I mean, that was true even of, of Abigail, who obviously um, you know, understood her own role in her husband's life, but there was a kind of sense of historical import in everything she wrote. Louisa was kind of this amazing um, satirist at times, but also just observer, and she had a, a voice that felt modern, even though I knew she was not a modern woman in many ways. So I wanted to explore where that came from, you know, and what could I learn from it, not only about her, but about the people she was talking about and the times in which she lived. Yep. Sure. Her um, father was a merchant from Annapolis. Um, he had come to the United States in, I'm sorry, come to London in 1771, basically to cut out the middleman. You know, shipping tobacco, not only tobacco, shoes, fine clothes, um, and the identity of her mother was um, the subject of great controversy for a long time because um, no one knew who Catherine Newth was. Um, and it turned out that her parents were married when she was 10, um, and she, we don't know if she knew it, um, but we do know that she kind of obscured her mother's origins. Um, and for a long time, it was actually thought, um, because of a stray comment she'd made about her age, that her mother was um, uh, 15 years old when she met John Quint or met Joshua Johnson, um, and that um, she was maybe a woman of some ill repute. I was actually able to find her birth records and um, track down who she was. She was the daughter of a kind of middle-class shoemaker, um, a pretty good shoemaker, a member of the guild. Um, not a, you know, a kind of woman of low standing. Um, but there was a kind of 
very clear and almost um, rapaciousness about Catherine Newth Johnson, um, which other people commented upon as well. Um, Joshua was also very ambitious. He was um, Thomas Jefferson's consul in London, and his house was known as a place that was welcoming to Americans, which is why um, Colonel Trumbull, John Trumbull, whom some of you probably know as the painter, um, brought John Quincy Adams to dinner one day when he was on a mission from The Hague. Um, and once he started coming to the Johnsons um, during his stay in London, he started coming every night, and uh, one thing led to another. I hope I, I know I'm supposed to be saying it Quincy, so I hope I'm saying it okay. couple things are kind of interesting here. She wasn't just raised to think of herself as American. She was raised to think of herself as Southern. Her father was from Maryland. Um, she would have preferred, he would have preferred she didn't marry a Yankee. Um, Catherine was a little bit more excited about John Quincy than Joshua was probably. But um, um, yeah, it was hard. And Abigail was um, kind, but did not think she was of stern enough stuff for her son and made it very clear. Um, so they would have exchanges like Louisa asked, um, you know, she said I could really use help with cooking. I could help with the cook. And Abigail said, we do not have people like that here, which was not true also. <laughs> and she goes, perhaps I could find some 10 year olds to look after the boy. Um, but you know, it was a kind of, it was a little bit of a culture clash for both of them. Not in the sense that, um, but they sort of, Louisa became more adapted. First, her strategy really was actually to be sick a lot. Um, once they went to Boston, she would, she wrote kind of, strangely enough, I found myself falling ill at those moments we were supposed to go to Quincy. Um, <laughs> um, and so John Quincy would go by himself. Um, but um, another one is that her, she, a sister and her mother came, and that made her feel much more at home. It was kind of customary for family members to come you know, for long periods of time. Um, and ultimately, John Quincy took over some of the kind of home economy duties that were um, meant a woman was supposed to do. And that was actually quite humiliating at first. Um, you know, doing the account books and things like that. But um, eventually Louisa, especially after that trip in Europe, that time in Europe, Louisa became incredibly adept and skillful at running the house, you know. So by the time they come back to Washington, she, you know, she's the one who's buying the house and superintending construction and keeping accounts and very much involved in that aspect of things. And he made her, I mean, he had made her executrix of his affairs in Europe. I mean, it, it really changed, but it, it took some time. Yeah. Did she have any political views or was she just a completely 
she had um well she was constantly disclaiming her interest in and knowledge of politics every single letter begins with i know nothing about politics i hate politics but then it would be full of like gossip about what's happening in the treasury department um mostly she was a, a cynic i mean i would she was kind of um down on whoever was in power, incredibly defensive of her husband, um, and very, very sharp. She was very smart. Um, she mostly talked about who she didn't like. But, um, you know, the, the one topic that she kind of was torn about was, was slavery, actually, um, because partly because she was raised to think of herself as Southerner, all her sisters had slaves, and it she was anti-slavery, um, but it, she talked about how it divided her from her family, and also John Quincy was really one of the first kind of major establishment figures to take as strong a stand and kind of a, the figurehead of you know of a movement that was by then you know really burgeoning, um, and but it put him in a lonely, isolated position. Um, he was, you know, threatened with assassination. Um, she was scared as well. So that was, that was something she struggled with. Mostly she was more interested in the style of politics, I would say. She was very interested in like rhetoric and things like that and how people made appeals and gossip, political gossip, but not actually policy. Uh, living in, in the boondocks and having to cook dinner for everybody. So did they have the money? Uh, well, they never had the money. But I should also add that the Johnsons really didn't have the money either, which is a part of her story. Um, but their financial system, uh, system uh, situation is, is a little bit complicated. Um, John Quincy was a public servant for most of his life, all of his life. And he lived on the salary in which, um, which he had, and he feared debt. He abhorred debt. Um, and when you were a minister in Europe, you know, St. Petersburg, he had a huge salary by American standards, but it was nothing compared to what the other diplomatics, diplomats were had. And, and you were supposed to entertain and wear ball gowns and all this stuff. And it was always very hard for them. I mean, money was a huge, huge struggle and issue for them. Um, Louisa, because of this situation with her family. Her father actually went bankrupt um, right after they were married. Moving to the boondocks, she didn't have a kind of haughty attitude about it really because she felt um, like she had no claims of her own. She had no money of her own and so she had no right to ask for anything. So, which was kind of part of her, you know, struggle, trauma. Uh, Colonel Trumbull bought him to dinner one night um, in London when he was um, doing some errands about the Jay Treaty in London. He was a, the diplomatic representative in, at The Hague at the time. And um, she, at the time, she had all these sisters and they were all very pretty and it was customary for the girls after supper to um, 
serenade, you know, whatever eligible young bachelor was there. Um, and she was a soprano. And um, we know John Quincy noticed her because he would record whenever she sang, you know, in his diary. He didn't write too much about his... He was a very much like a facts kind of person, you know, so he'd be like, Louisa sang. They did. Yeah, they did. Um, Well, Louisa was a voracious reader and actually turned... One of the things that was so exciting to me about writing this book was and researching this book was watching her grow. Um, even in old age, she... Um, the kind of... I mean, there were signs of her curiosity and strong intellect, as a, even as a child. Um, but... It wasn't really until she was pretty middle-aged that she really started reading as kind of just voraciously as as Abigail did. Um, I mean, she could go to bat with anyone about Shakespeare and Sir Walter Scott or you know Maria Edgeworth or whatever the kind of novels of the day, Richardson or um, and her letters were also filled with references to Milton and Alexander Pope and. Um, all that, but I, um, she didn't consider herself an intellectual. Um, I think that, um, later when they came back to the United States, John Quincy had been writing his mother, these kind of long reports and he no longer had time to do that when he was secretary of state. So Louisa took over the job and her letters were just full of insight and news and a lot of kind of parties as well, but also really kind of, they're funny, like I said, and interesting. And, and Abigail was quite surprised, and actually said, quite surprised. <laughs> um, but they became much closer, and they would talk about, you know, religious revivalism and talk about, you know, one of my favorite, and she and John Adams were very close. And she sort of stepped into the role of strong, smart woman that Abigail, once Abigail died, that Abigail had filled. One of my favorite letters is she has just sent him, like she's been translating Plato, you know, Socrates' Apology, um, and she's learning Latin. And she said, oh, I know you're going to laugh at me, but I'm learning Latin to help my sons. It's always like I'm doing, I'm reading this because I want to help my sons who are in college and everything. Um, but he's saying, oh, you should read the Stoics. And she writes back this letter about political philosophy. And she has read everyone. She's read Hume. She's read Hobbes. She's read Kant. You know, she's read everybody. And she kind of, in like phrases, just kind of sums them up and dismisses them. <laughs> um, and then, you know, and lands on Christianity as being the perfect kind of philosophy. Um, but it's just a brilliant letter. Um, you know, so, so she... She was smarter than, you know, she kind of got credit for, for most people. Some people, like John Adams, knew.
I mean, this book was really only possible because she wrote so much. Um, and she wrote these memoirs, but not just those. She wrote letters. I mean, thousands of letters. Um, and they're also, you know, account books and there are maps and there, are, I mean, there's the Adams family is just this kind of wealth of mass historical society is just like, um, so I, there was kind of a lot right there. Well, there was, there were things that are unexpected. I love the little kind of detective work. Like I loved finding her mother, you know, looking through parish registers and land tax records to figure out where, you know, piecing together and court cases because someone once stole a pair of shoes from who's his grandfather, you know, things like that. Um, that kind of stuff was fun. Oh, actually, I do know. I, can, I do have a good answer. Um, at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania, there was a box in the collection of a, a judge who was a friend of this guy, Joseph Hopkinson, who was a friend of, uh, of John Quincy and Louisa's. There was a box, and it was called um, Letters from Ladies. <laughs> and inside, there were all these letters from Louisa Catherine Adams. And they were not, actually not cataloged in Massachusetts Historical Society's register of no, in Adam's letters, he's, no one had read these in years. Um, and because she was a woman, she just kind of got, you know, tucked away. And actually, some of these letters were amazing because they were commissioning this guy, this person who would become a Supreme Court judge, um, to buy things for her in Philadelphia because she's decorating the White House. And she's making kind of short asides and jokes and, you know, um, but she's also very precise and, you know, she's giving him dollar amounts and telling him where to go. And, you know, again, to see her development from when she first arrived in Podunk and couldn't handle going to the market to buy like eggs and parsley to someone who is, you know, talking about, you know, interest rates and also, you know, how much she wants to be spending and what she wants to be doing and why it was kind of amazing. And that's one of those moments in which like social history, kind of tells you so much. Yep. His career was unusual at the end in that he went back to the house. How did she find that period in Washington? Well, at first she didn't want to go with him. She was very angry. Um, their son had just died um, pretty tragically, and she kind of blamed politics, blamed herself, and blamed John Quincy. Um, and she was like, I'm done with this. Um, I'm tired. Um, and, and so are you, <laughs> but, um, not to be, um, ultimately she actually really, like I said, she grew a lot during that time. It was sometimes a really hard time. Um, mostly because, because of her son's struggles. Um, but in a lot of ways it was when she became most introspective, um, she wrote a lot, um, and she also, like I said, she read a lot, she grew a lot. That's when her journal becomes less, it's not written for Abigail Adams anymore, it's written for herself. Um, it's a lot more, her interiority kind of becomes her subject. Um, and she becomes more interested in women, and the idea of free speech is something she becomes really interested in because John Quincy is, 
he did not begin as, he was not an abolitionist, but he got involved in the anti-slavery movement because he was presenting petitions to Congress and defending the right to present petitions, and most of them were about slavery. And he really believed that that was a sacred right, I mean, he called it sacred. A petition actually was sometimes referred to as a prayer. Um, and so she started getting interested in what is this idea of speech and should do women have the right to speech? And she says, yes, you know, she calls it the ne plus ultra of women's rights. And this is like before Seneca Falls. She's not a feminist herself, but she sort of starts asking these questions and she starts corresponding with Sarah Grimke, who is this, you know, one of the earliest um, proto-feminists. There were no feminists at the time, but proto-feminists and um, also abolitionists. And, you know, she really kind of um, sometimes comes to life. My favorite series of letters that she wrote are from um, 1848, from a couple weeks before John Quincy Adams collapsed on the floor of the house. She was on fire. And she's telling stories about Winfield Scott and these parties in which these kind of like foppish, you know, generals are coming home from the Mexican-American War in their little jackets. And she's, she's just, take, I mean, she's taking them all down, but she's um, kind of speaking her mind at, and also describing, I mean, it's just this amazing scene that she's painting um, in such a kind of crackling voice. Um, and it all stops when he collapses, when he dies. Um, she basically is just overcome with grief. And she stops writing. She did. She was, if insofar as she had a home, Washington really was it. They lived on F Street and I Street, but most F Street. Um, so first, her, that was like probably the low point of her life, probably in some ways, um, or certainly her political life. Um, there wasn't really a lot of precedent. There was no precedent for a kind of involved first lady. I mean, Abigail often wasn't even with, you know, wasn't in Washington or Philadelphia or whatever. Sometimes she was. But um, her predecessor, um, Elizabeth Monroe, had been extremely private. She may have been sick, um, which is why one of the reasons why she was kind of antisocial. But she set a precedent for only interacting with people at these like parties, these levees they were called, very formal, once every two weeks. And Louisa followed that model, and she spent the time just isolated and sad. I mean, she begged her sons to send them, send her chocolate and French poetry for her to translate because she wrote, I cannot bear the loneliness in my life. Um, and there was a real tension between her and John Quincy in this time, partly because she had such a clear role to play in his political life, which was his life, um, you know, in the year, in the eight years before, or really their entire marriage coming up to the presidency. But once he's president, um, and this is part of the tragedy of his presidency, this is true kind of more broadly, it doesn't just have to do with her, he kind of assumes it as a mandate, right? He's like, I can do whatever I want, you know, I'm going to build roads and I'm going to make these treaties and I'm going to do, the, has this ambitious plan that he lays out in his first annual message. And Congress just laughs at him. 
you know, and he doesn't, he's not really able to kind of forge these important relationships and, and she's not asked really to do anything and she's kind of expected to stay behind the scenes and she does and it's hard, it's really hard. Feel free to ask me questions about that. Um, I geared myself up by starting to write about tennis. <laughs> I'm actually not kidding. I um I agreed to write I signed a contract to write this book. And I was suddenly realized what a huge project it was. And um, I was I ran from it and started playing tennis all the time. And then started writing about tennis. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, I mean, the thing about Louisa is that, and the reward of a project like this, is that there's so much, but it's possible to become immersed in it. Um, you, can just, you can just live inside inside this material and so once you get into it you just don't want to come up for air. I mean I did much of the research actually when I was living in Berlin and I would go I read, I read up Adam's papers microfilm or like 608 reels of microfilm and there was a, a university in Berlin in the kind of edge of West Berlin and I would take the train out there and there was only one microfilm machine so I had to get there when the library opened and I would stay there until the library closed, and I didn't have email access. I didn't have a smartphone. All I did, all day long, from set like 8 a.m. to 7 p.m., was read letters, and it was that was the best way to do it because her voice would just be like running through my head. I would dream about her. <laughs> 